Good morning, everybody. Some of you came back. Today, I'm going to take you to Jerusalem. All right? 31 AD. There's going to be a Passover there, and we are going to be with Jesus. Let's get this open. Here we go. What is Passover? I'm going to give you a basic biblical definition. Passover is a celebration of redemption by the blood of the Passover lamb. It is deliverance through the Red Sea and the defeat of the Egyptian army. It is freedom to serve the Lord in the land promised to Abraham. Now there is also a parallel to Jesus. Do you know that? Because Jesus died on Passover. And John called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We have redemption in his blood. And we have deliverance through his resurrection. So we travel from Galilee down to Jerusalem in 31 AD. But you know, before we start, we ought to pray. Huh? Let's ask our God and our Father to open our eyes so that we can see what Jesus is going to do. Our Father, you sent your Son to a cross. He died a horrible death so that we could be wonderfully delivered. Then he arose from the grave so that we could serve in victory and walk with him. He is coming again so that we can be with you. You pass over our sins so that we have no fear of death. The Lamb of God does save us. Amen. Amen. Last week we talked about Passover 30 A.D. When Jesus shut down the market, he said, this is my father's house. He overthrew the tables of the Sadducees. But in 30 A.D., he could go there. Nobody knew him. Now all of Galilee knows him. And this year, thousands of people from Galilee come with him to the Passover feast. And you know when they get there, you know who they're talking about down there in Judea? Who do you think they're talking about? They're talking about Jesus, all these miracles that he's done. And he's still presenting himself to the nation as their Messiah. And he's still seeing rising popularity and the approval of the crowds. But see, underneath all this, there are rumblings of opposition. Now, if you like this timeline, if you want to get this timeline, you can go to a site called BibleTech.com. That's a, a site I've created for my classes. And uh, you, there's little cards out there at the, uh, at the information desk. You can pick one up, and that will help you get there. There's other resources there as well. I hope, uh, I hope you can use those. But today we're going to start in John chapter 5. And so uh, we're going to be in John 5 and Mark 2. I'm using the ESV Bible. That's the Bible under the chair. makes it easy for you. I think it's John 5 is on page 890. Really be nice if you follow it along. You don't have to. You might have a phone or a laptop or something else. Go ahead and use that. But this week, 31 AD, the scene opens at a place called the Pool of Bethesda. And John 5.1 starts this way. It says, It was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. For us that means house of mercy. It has five colonnades, and in these colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now the pool of Bethesda, as you see it here, this is classic Roman architecture. It's four roofed colonnades with one roof through the center. We see the same design throughout the whole temple site because King Herod did build the temple and he did it with some Roman design. But the pool of the Bethesda built by him was actually two connected pools and it was built as a healing center dedicated to Roman gods. It was a place of superstition. But Jesus comes here on a Passover Sabbath and shows us there's no place for false religion. On Passover, more than 200,000 baby sheep or little lambs are sacrificed. That's why John points out that the sheep gate is on the north side of the temple. And it reminds us that that's what this feast is about, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Now the water flows from the pool of Bethesda into the temple and cleanses away the blood of the sacrifices. So let's take a closer look at the pool. Let's go down and kind of look over the top. And what we see here is Jesus enters the scene. And in 5.5, it says one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Verse 7, the sick man, the sick man answered him and said, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me, and I can't get there in time. What he does is he gives a man an excuse. He gives Jesus an excuse. He says, I can't be healed because I can't get into the water. Now, why does he say this? Superstition. Now, there are several superstitions attributed in this time to the stirred-up water. Many of them are tied to Roman gods, but for Jews who are absolutely fascinated with angels. Jewish superstition said the water was stirred by an angel sent from God. That's why some of you have verse 4 in your Bibles. It says there, for an angel of the Lord went down and stirred up the water at certain times. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed from the disease which he suffered. Now why is that verse in some Bibles but not in others? Well, that verse was added later to manuscripts, and there was an early scribe, and he's really, really trying to be helpful. He added that line later to explain the Jewish superstition of that time. So it's likely that our sick man here that day believes that particular superstition. An angel stirs the water, and the first one into the water wins the prize, like a game show. But it's a game show that really, when you think about it, preys on helplessness and weakness. And what does stir the water? You know, I don't know. I've read several things. One man says that there's connecting pipes, connecting tubes, and maybe water flowing through those pipes between the two pools, the upper and the lower, maybe that stirs the water. But you know, here's the real important question. What does the stirring of the water have to do with the man getting healed? Nothing. Absolutely has nothing to do with it. And the question still before us is, do you want to be healed? I can't. I'm a loser. There's nobody to get me to the water. 
I can't. Nobody loves me. And I can't get to the water fast enough. Now let me point out here, I want to make this clear that the man does not know who Jesus is. Jesus is just simply a normal-looking Jewish man, and he comes up to this man and asks him if he wants to be healed. Now, on the face of it, think about it. That's a pretty silly question. Who wouldn't want to be healed? He says, I have no one to help me. But Jesus has asked him, do you want to be healed? Jesus doesn't say, I'll help you get in the water. No, look what he says in verse 8. He says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus ignores the superstition. One simple command. He says, get up, believe me, or believe the superstition. It's your decision. Now imagine the man, I can imagine this. I like to imagine the scene because I think it's real. I think this really took place. The man looks at the water. It's not being stirred up. Then he looks up at Jesus. He knows he's not an angel. But he thinks he's telling me to walk. You know, something happens in his mind. He, he, he can weigh his, his choices here. He can say, okay, on the one hand, I can just lay here for 38 more years in misery. Or I can give this a try. So he tries to move his leg. It moves a little bit. And then he bends it, and it bends. And then he, he stands up. And now look at verse 9. In verse 9, it says, very simply, that the man was healed... And he took up his bed and walked. Now, that is an incredible understatement. There are several of those in the Bible. You know, Jesus in the wilderness was tempted for 40 days and went without food. And it said he became hungry. Yeah, you think? So now he's standing and he takes a step. The first step he's taken in 38 years. And then he walks. And he looks down at his legs. They're perfectly normal. What had been a moment ago, just skinny, frail little sticks, are now perfectly whole. Have you ever seen anybody who hasn't walked for a year or two years? What their legs become like? They're, we call that atrophy. But that's gone. And then he looks down and then he looks up. And the man is gone. And he thinks... If not for him, I'd still be on that mat. Now I want to take us forward. I want to take us into the future, our future. Sometime in the future, it's going to be like that, exactly like that for us. We will be standing in resurrected bodies, healed, whole, perfect. And we will look down into our hearts. Oh, wait a minute. Let's do it this way. Look down into your heart now. Let's look into our hearts now. I see frailty. I see pettiness. I see doubt. I see fear. I see wickedness in my heart. But you know what? That's going to all be gone. Completely gone. And then we will look up and Jesus will be there. He will be there. And you know what I'll think on that, time, on that day? I'm going to think, if it wasn't for him, I'd still be in my sin. Well, what the man does, he picks up his mat and leaves the pool of Bethesda behind. 
Now, this interaction with Jesus and the sick man at the pool of Bethesda is a setup. It is a setup with a purpose because what Jesus has done here is created a Sabbath challenge. Now, the Sabbath is the sacred tradition of the Pharisees. Go back and look at verse 9. Jesus ends with a very simple statement. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Why does John want us to know that little fact? Because Jesus may have not stirred up the water of Bethesda, but Jesus wants to stir up the Pharisees. And he's already set it up using a man who doesn't even know who he is. Now, you have to understand, Jesus is being very careful. The priests, the Sadducees, the temple guard, they do know who he is now. The priests remember the disruption of last year's Passover, where Jesus challenged them in the temple. The Romans fear disruption at every Passover. Why? Because Passover celebrated the deliverance of the Jews from a wicked Gentile power. And that made Rome, the Gentile power, made them very, very nervous. They would triple the guard in the Praetorian, they would triple the Praetorian guard at the fortress of Antonia. For Annas and the Sadducees, they needed peace with Rome, so they appreciated this tripling of the guard. Their wealth, their power, their opposition, it depended on it. Uh, they would love to have the Romans arrest Jesus, but they have a problem. Jesus is still the champion of the Pharisees. They still support him. So our newly healed man, he goes out for a walk. He leaves the pool of Bethesda. It's his first walk in 38 years. I can see him. He's walking down the street. Man, he's got a spring in his step. He's saying, look at me. I can walk. I'm healed. And all of a sudden, he hears a voice. Hey, you. In verse 10 and 11. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Remember, he's still carrying his mat. But he says, but the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your mat and walk. Now, I like to imagine, I like to imagine different scenarios when I study the Bible. I like to put it in the context of the culture and the history and the time and the way people really react. I mean, people react, you know, and, and you know, look at it. It could have gone like this. I really think it could have gone this way with these men. He says to the Jews who stop him, a man, he healed me. And they would be skeptical. They would have a right to be skeptical. They would ask, you got healed? Yeah, at the pool for 38 years, I couldn't walk until today. And then, wait a minute, you haven't walked for 38 years? They look at his legs, you know. Until today? That's right, just got up and walked. Look at my legs. Look, look, good as new. The guy at the pool where I was, he told me to get up, and then he told me, carry the mat and walk. Yeah, yeah, he told me to carry the mat. Maybe he forgot that it was the Sabbath. And now, these men, now they see it's a real miracle, and they apologize to the man. They're so sorry, and everybody lives happily ever after. Ha, <laughs> you laugh. Why do you laugh? Because you know it's not true. Well, no, that's not the way it ends. We know that's not the way it ends, and they are not nice at all about it. Look at verse 12. Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? All they see is a Sabbath breaker. Who told you to break the Sabbath law? But he didn't know. He didn't know who it was. He didn't know who healed him. 
It says in verse 13, for Jesus had withdrawn because that place was very crowded. That's not the end of it. Jesus isn't done. He continues with this miracle in his father's house, the place where the Lord deals with sin. Ha! Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more so that nothing may worse may happen to you. Wait a minute. What? What could be worse than 38 years of physical torment? Well, you know what it is? It's an eternity of physical torment. Stop sinning or it will get worse for you. Now maybe I think that until that moment that man hasn't thought about sin. The crippling effects of sin on the heart, on the soul, even the body. In the temple, in the Lord's house, the Lord Jesus confronts him. Stop sinning. Stop sinning? Nobody can do that. There are so many excuses. We say, I'm a loser anyway. Nobody cares really what I do. That's ridiculous. Nobody can stop sinning. I think the worst excuse of all, yeah, maybe tomorrow. Not today. Maybe tomorrow. Jesus could say to him, I told you to walk, and nobody can walk after 38 years of being lame, yet look, you are walking. And so now I say, stop sinning. I'm telling you to believe me or hang on to your excuse. Now, if the man sees his encounter with Jesus as purely physical, that this is just purely a physical healing, and that's, that's the end of it, then it will get worse for him. It will mean an eternity in torment. But if he does believe Jesus in this matter of sin, then he can change inside. And what the Pharisees say will no longer matter. Now, the next thing the man does is exactly what Jesus wants him to do. Look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Remember last week when Jesus sent the healed leper back to the temple as a testimony to the priests? Well, this man also has become a testimony for Jesus to the Pharisees. You see, you have to keep this in mind. Jesus doesn't hate them. He wants to save them. Do they believe Jesus healed the man? Absolutely. I mean, it's obvious. They can't deny the man was literally healed, but they don't care. In verse 16, this is why the Jews were persecuting or harassing Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered to them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is the confrontation that Jesus expected, but it's not what he wanted. And now they're going to watch him. The reason they're going to watch him is because they say to themselves, he will get caught in our trap. But their trap will drag them into deeper darkness. So these Pharisees, see, 
they claim they hold the keys to righteousness. They write the rules. They write the laws. They write the laws of the Sabbath. They interpret the laws. The Sabbath laws are the centerpiece, the pinnacle of Jewish life. And there are hundreds of Sabbath laws. Most Jews simply give up. The rabbis call them the sinners. The only way to righteousness is to follow the Pharisees. The rabbis will show you the way. Then you will not be a sinner. But this Jesus, he is a Sabbath violator. He even eats with sinners. But he is so popular. The people, they love him. You know, they're even to starting to call him rabbi. But you know why? It's only because of what he can do for them. That's why. The only thing is, Jesus does a lot more for the people than the rabbis ever did. So the Pharisees are watching. Look at Mark 2. We're going to go to Mark 2 now. Mark 2, verse 23, if you want to follow along. It says here that one Sabbath he, he was going to the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are, you, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, what were they doing wrong? Well, they were plucking the ears of grain off the tops. Rabbi said, that's farming. That's harvesting. That's reaping. Then they were taking these grains and they were rubbing them in their hands so they could knock the husk off and they could eat the grain inside. The rabbi says, that's threshing. There are hundreds of Sabbath laws like this. And they're all about as ridiculous as that one. But they only need to catch him in one. If they can convict his followers, they can get them, then we can get him. Verse 25, Jesus says to them, have you never read? I think it's funny when Jesus asks these Bible experts, haven't you read your Bible? (laughs) Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he, that's David, ate the bread of the presence? which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also he, that's again David, he gave it to those who were with him. Haven't you read in your Bible? Now some of you in here today maybe haven't read this passage. I'll just refer to it. It's 1 Samuel 21. You can go there and read it sometime, the whole story. But the point Jesus is making here is they should have known this. And this is Sabbath challenge number two. David and his soldiers were hungry. And Saul, the king, was in pursuit of them, so they were in danger. Now, the first principle here is that danger to life takes precedence over Sabbath law. The next principle is the high priest that met David, he himself was working on the Sabbath. It was his duty. It was his privilege. He was in service to the Lord. So the argument is that Jesus and his disciples are being pursued by the Pharisees. Jesus is the Son of God, but Jesus is Lord of the temple. That means Jesus is Lord of the priests. The disciples are serving him, so what's the conclusion? They are in service to the Lord. Working for the Lord on the Sabbath is not a violation of the Sabbath. It is a work of honor. Like the work that the people that come here every week, week after week, they do. 
in serving us. It's a work of honor. And then he says something even more astounding. He says in verse 27, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Lord of the temple is also the Lord of the Sabbath. This passage is a little hard to understand, but what Jesus means by this is, I wrote the laws of the Sabbath long before you guys were ever around. I was there with my father on the seventh day, and we rested, and we were refreshed, and it was all very good. The Sabbath is about creation, but it is also about Israel, because it is a sign. Now, I'm going to put up here on the screen Exodus 31, 17. It is a sign for Israel that makes Israel different from all other nations. And Moses, in talking about the Sabbath in Exodus 31, says, It is a sign between me and your generations who are going to be the sons of the nation of Israel. How long? Forever. In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased. That word is Sabbath. Rested. And was refreshed. A covenant sign of rest in the land promised to Abraham. A covenant sign of freedom after slavery from Egypt. Rest and freedom. But with the Pharisees, it is the opposite of rest. It is the opposite of freedom. Their whole view of Sabbath is rules, restrictions, and bondage, deeper bondage. The poor Jewish people, they just gave up. But Jesus and the disciples, they're not violating the law of Moses. They are violating the traditions of the Pharisees. On another Sabbath day, we find Jesus and his disciples in a synagogue. Jesus came to preach, and the synagogue was where the Bibles are. That's why he would go there. And he was determined to preach and preach his message. Go on and look in Mark 3. If you continue on, Mark 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And as the man was coming down, he said to them, he said to the Pharisees, he's got a question for them. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? This is Sabbath challenge number three. Then Jesus waits for their answer. Total silence. They can't answer. They dare not answer. Now, they could answer no to the killing. Of course, that's obvious. Murder is unlawful on any day. The answer to answer no to saving a life, however, would mean murder by neglect, even on the Sabbath. See, what's happened here is they are trapped in their own teaching because they teach the people that it is a good work It is a good thing to rescue an animal out of a pit on the Sabbath. That's allowed. This is Jesus using their own words against them. And then he looks around in verse 5. 
silence. They don't respond. And it says here that he he's, looks around with anger. He has anger in his heart. And he says he's, because he's grieved at their hardness of heart. He is angered by their attitude toward this poor man who Jesus knows has more value than an animal. So he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Instantly perfect. He did it. On the Sabbath. And they're stuck. They can't say a word. He has humiliated them in their synagogue, on their playing field, caught in their own teaching. Jesus has thrown over the Sabbath traditions of the Pharisees for the third time, just like he threw over the tables of the Sadducees in the temple. He is Lord of the temple. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this was an opportunity for these men because sometimes humiliation leads to humility, which leads to repentance. And you think of it. God can humiliate you if he has to, and he will. And what a blessing it is if in humiliation we respond with, yes, Lord, this is who I am. This is what I did. Please help me to be humble you're asking for change. And this is the Lord God, Jesus Christ, humiliating them. They have an opportunity. They could humble themselves. They could see they were wrong. They could admit that and admit they need help and repent. But they don't. And they won't. Verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. The Herodians. These are the Jewish men who backed the Herod family, who backed Rome. They're backers of Rome, and the Herodians backed the Sadducees. The Sadducees run the temple. This is religion married to politics. Religion and politics joined together in a plot, in a plot to kill Jesus. And Jesus says to them all, Pharisees, rabbis, Sadducees, Herodians, I am not your man. I reject your religious traditions. I reject your political games. And now is a really good time for Jesus to leave Judea. His work is done, at least for now. Goes on in verse 7, says Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, meaning the Sea of Galilee. He's going to go back north. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, a vast area. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around to touch him. Why do the crowds love him? Why do the people follow him? It's because of the sign miracles that he does. And there are three responses to these signs. John 5.36 says these signs are witnesses. that This is Jesus, the Messiah, the one you've waited for. 
Jesus says, these are witnesses that my father sent me. And there's three responses. Some say, how can we help? How can we serve you? These are those who are confirmed in their faith in who he is. Some say, what can we get? He's the great healer. These people are unconfirmed in their faith in him. Because as long as it's going well, yeah, they want to be around. But if it gets a little tough, they may not stay. And some say, he's going to cost us too much. These are the Sadducees. These are the Pharisees. These are those who say, we don't care what he's done. We don't like that he's doing it. They're confirmed in their rejection. In Matthew 11, Jesus says that I don't come for you to rely on signs. I come for you to rely on me. Look what he says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, up on your screen. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's Sabbath. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. See, Jesus himself is humble. And you will find rest for your souls. Rest, again, that's Sabbath. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Pharisees say, keep our laws and you will be righteous. That is a blessed burden. But Jesus says, the burden of your righteousness is on me. The yoke of service is with me. It's for me. Now, if I ask you, is being a Christian always easy? I got to get some no's. It's not. But our salvation is secure. We are resting on the rock. We are safe. We rest in Him. Now that is true Sabbath. And we will stand in His presence utterly and perfectly healed physically our hearts clean, perfect bodies. With that, we have to pray. Oh, Jesus, you are our audience. We lift up our hearts to you now. In our weakness, we're plagued by the sin that's in us and around us. But yoke to you we can rest. Yoke to you we can serve. Lord, what can we do to help? What can we do until that glorious day when we all stand before you? We pray in Jesus' name, the one who's watching now, amen and amen.